Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, today, as we begin now uh, turning our attention to God's Word, we are concluding uh, an eight-week series that we had in the book of Esther uh, by considering the last two chapters of Esther today. Now, Esther, is, uh, Esther has been a book that I've always wanted uh, to preach. Um, I've really wanted to preach it for the past several years, and I'm so glad, personally, that we got the time to go through it together um, to really mine the riches of God's Word, and uh, particularly because the book is so difficult to understand uh, with things like um, no mention of God's name uh, is, is the biggest one. It's obviously in the Old Testament, so Jesus isn't uh, very clearly mentioned. But I hope and pray that it's really been an edifying time, uh, encouraging, challenging, and convicting, um, as only God's Word can do. And so I hope that our time here has really helped you grow in your faith and uh, also understanding God's sovereignty and increasing your love for Jesus. And so uh, it's been a blessing to me and, uh, as we close up this section, um, as we finish Esther today. Next week, we will begin a four-week series um, as we focus again on the calling for four theme. And that series, that four-week series, will be called uh, Being Winsome to Winsome. And so... Uh, I thought you'd appreciate that a little more. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but we, we will focus on that for the next four weeks. So today, as we stand now to receive the last reading from the book of Esther, please rise with me as we read chapters 9 to 10. And we consider the sermon today entitled Remembrance and Celebration. Uh, it's a, quite a, a long passage, and so uh, what's on the PowerPoint and what's on the sermon insert will uh, show the, the verses that we'll be reading from. So please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain ma the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Verse 13, And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that they had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. 
But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they call these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and that the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, we just read a section of your word that was quite lengthy. Um, but Lord, I pray that by your spirit we could digest it and understand it. And Lord, we confess how uh, sometimes difficult it is to understand narratives. Sometimes it's difficult to understand Old Testament. It's very difficult, Lord, to understand passages that really seem to not say anything about you clearly. But by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through these last chapters of Esther? And as you have done constantly and continually, would you refresh us in your word? Would you feed us in your word? Would you nourish us? Would you show us your heart? Would you instruct us? And would you allow us to cast our eyes to see Jesus? He is the hero of the story. He is the main character of this narrative. And I pray, God, that through our time in your word that our hearts would desire him more and more and that we, your people, would walk away instructed and built up for we heard your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the time we get to the book of Esther chapter 9, we've really come full circle. Now, we've spent eight weeks. Uh, this is our eighth week. I've been gone two of the weeks, so it's been about ten weeks since we started. But if you remember Esther chapter 1, do you remember how that book started? Because it's in remembering Esther 1 that we begin to see that there's a theme that's being weaved throughout the entire narrative. And finally, at the concluding chapters, it's sort of uh, brought together into a nice, neat bow. And what is that theme? Well, first you have to remember what Esther 1 was about. Now, let me... Uh, Bring your attention to a few uh, verses here. Now, this may get a little confusing, um, but I've put it up here for us to understand. So, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 3, this is what it said. It said, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And so, Esther began uh, with a feast thrown for all the officials in the entire empire. 
a feast for everybody in the empire. And then what happened in verse five is that the king threw a second feast. It says that when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. And so what we see here is a second feast, but now this one is only for the people in Susa. So one feast for everyone in the empire, a second feast for those only in Susa. Well, if we look at how the final chapters ended, we saw that in chapter 9, verse 19, it says, Therefore the Jews of the villages, so in the empire, who live in the rural towns, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting. And what we see happening in parallel fashion is as there was a feast for all the servants, all the officials in the empire, now there's a feast for all the Jews all across the empire. And then it says in chapter 9, verse 18, but the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. And this time a feast is thrown for those who were in Susa. And so I've organized it here in the PowerPoint so that you see a bit of structure happening that the book of Esther begins with two feasts and it ends with two feasts. And this is signaling something important to us. We start seeing the shape of something significant taking place here. Now, at the risk of going a little far further into the details, I'm, I'm going to go there. We see that this theme of feasting continues in the narrative. So in chapter 2, when Esther finally rises to power, it says, The king loved Esther more than all the women, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. So Esther comes to power, she's given a feast. But what we see near the end of the book is when Mordecai rises to power, it says in chapter 8, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reach, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And I'm going to push it one step further further, because right in the middle of the story of Esther is when Esther finally gets the boldness and the courage to approach the king, and what does she do? If you remember, she throws two feasts. In chapter 5, so the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and then in chapter 7, so the king and Haman went into the feast with Esther. This is the second feast. And I spent all this attention to the details because the book is telling us this is a book about feasting. But why a feast? Because a feast signifies celebration. Celebrating what? But that's actually not the right question. Not celebrating what, but celebrating who? You see, when chapter 1 started, King Ahasuerus threw these feasts, who was he celebrating? He was celebrating himself. Look at how great I am. Look at my land. Look at my glory. Look at my power. He was telling everyone in the kingdom to behold himself. But what we see happening at the end of the book when the Jews celebrate is that they're celebrating God and all that he had done to behold all of his mighty power in salvation. And so we began this series talking about the theological lesson that we learned from the book of Esther. And we said that that theological theme was to teach us what the silent sovereignty of God looks like. But although that's the theological theme, Esther serves a historical purpose. It was written to a people at that time. And the historical purpose was to teach the Jews about the origins of the Feast of Purim so that the Jews would continually remember it and celebrate it. 
That's why this book is written, to explain and to teach the significance of Purim. Now, as Christians, we don't celebrate Purim, but there is so much for us to learn about the themes of remembrance and celebration, because that's what Purim stood for. You see, the Christian life and the Christian calendar is full of times for God's people to gather in order to remember and to celebrate. And so we have things in our church calendar, right? We have Advent, we have Christmas, we have Lent, we have Good Friday, we have Easter Sunday, and so on and so forth. But the most important regular gathering of remembrance and celebration is what we do weekly as we gather as God's people to observe the Lord's Day. Now, I'm not saying that Purim points to our Sunday worship. I'm not saying that we read this and therefore Purim equals Sunday gathering, but the themes of remembrance, the themes of celebration found in this holiday are the same themes found when Christians gather together. So we're going to look at this passage and we're going to consider this gospel truth. Christians should commit to regularly, rem, uh, regularly gathering for gospel-centered remembrance and celebration. That's the gospel truth. Christians gather regularly for gospel-centered remembrance and celebration. And so as we look at this theme about what remembrance and celebration should be, I'm going to talk about three things. It should be first, centered on the gospel, Second, a priority in our lives. And third, taught to the next generation. And so first, remembrance and celebration should be centered on the gospel. If you look with me at chapter 9, verse 1, it begins this way. On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So if you remember, at the heart of Purim, the Jews are remembering that they were under Haman's death threat. They were under state-sponsored extermination and annihilation. They were going to go undergo destruction until God orchestrated a great reversal. He saved them. But God didn't simply just save the Jews. What he actually did was he switched their fates. He exchanged their destiny with their enemies. And so the Jews who were supposed to die at the hand of the enemies, now they become the ones who put their enemies to death. And that's why the whole feast is called Purim. It shows the irony of this. In verse 24, it says that when Haman had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, how did he do it? He cast pur to crush and to destroy them. But because of this reversal where the Jews weren't destroyed, but now Haman and his children and the enemies were destroyed, they call this celebration pur. And the feast celebrates the fact that the Jews were not at the mercy of Haman. They thought they were at the mercy of Haman. They thought their fate was in his hands, but they were always at the mercy of God. God turns Haman's plot on his head, and we see that the Jews are not only spared, but they actually destroy their enemies. Now, this part of the scripture gets really complicated because we're actually told very specific numbers. It says, in Susa, the citadel, 500, people, 500 enemies were destroyed, and then it says, in the rural area, 75,000 across the empire were killed. And I need to clarify something because a lot of people read this, especially the Old Testament. You read this and you get confu confused. Scholars have actually rejected this portion of the story because they, they, they say this is so violent. Why would God command people to kill all of these enemies? In fact, a lot of writing 
uh, by liberal scholars say Esther and Mordecai are actually fallen heroes. That they've reached their pinnacle, but now they've fallen because they've allowed a vengeful spirit to take over them. And so now that they're in power, they're so hungry, and so they go around, they're blood hungry, and they're going around killing their enemies. But is that what's really happening? I don't think so. What we actually see is that the Jews are finally being obedient to God. They have finally learned their lesson. Now, what do I mean by that? The author mentions a refrain in the text that I've only had printed for us once, but he mentions three times in verses 10, 15, and 16, this little detail. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, as you read that, you're going, what's so significant about that? Why is this repeated three times that they didn't lay hands on the plunder, that they didn't take any of the goods and steal it from the people they destroyed? And to answer that, I have to do some more teaching. If you remember who Haman is, Haman is called Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Now, Haman as an Agagite meant that he was a descendant from the Amalekite king Agag. And if you remember, Mordecai is a Benjaminite, the son of Kish, meaning that he's uh, descending from the same line as King Saul. So, a few weeks ago, we talked about this. Back in 1 Samuel 15, when Israel was fighting the Amalekites, King Saul was fighting King Agag, and God gave one simple command. In chapter 15, verse 3 of 1 Samuel, he says, Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It was very clear. God saying, I want you to wipe all of it out. But what Saul did next was so disgraceful, such a great sin, that it actually cost him his kingdom. So we see just a few verses later, the author writes, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. And in effect, Saul disobeyed God by plundering their enemies when he was told explicitly not to plunder them. And as a result, Agag lived, his line continued, Haman came about and endangered the life of God's people. But Mordecai, Mordecai is a Benjaminite, a son of Kish, a descendant from Saul's line, and he does not commit the same mistake that his fallen ancestor did. So Mordecai, who is in charge now, by destroying all of their enemies while refusing to plunder them, Mordecai is doing what? He's obeying God as King Saul should have done centuries before. And so through Mordecai's obedience, God's people are saved. And what we see happening here is a picture of the gospel being developed, a picture of a great reversal. Chapter 10, verse 3, as it ends, tells us Mordecai, he's the great hero of the story, and it says that he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And Mordecai is being established in this text as a better Saul. But even Mordecai was pointing to one who would come as a better Mordecai, God's own son, Because whereas Mordecai spoke peace to his people, Jesus Christ came as the Prince of Peace. Whereas Mordecai saved his people through justice, Jesus Christ saved his people through mercy. Whereas Mordecai had his enemy hung on the gallows, Jesus Christ took the death his enemies deserved and he hung on a cross. 
so that now you and I, we don't stand in the shadow of Haman's gallows, but we stand in the shadow of a horrific Golgotha. We have a greater deliverance. We've experienced a greater reversal and we're saved by a greater Mordecai. And therefore, all that we have in Jesus gives us greater reason to remember and to celebrate than Purim ever could. Purim said that you were going to die, but through justice and the death of the enemy, you get to live. But the gospel says, when spiritually you were condemned, the one you offended took the gallows for you and he spared you so that now you don't only get to live, you get to live eternally. This is why our remembrance and celebration must be gospel-centered. It's centered on this great reversal. You see, think about this. What was the nature of our sin? What do we need saving from? The nature of our sin is that every single day we try to reverse roles with God. Every single day we try to be king. We try to be God. We try to have God exist to serve us. We want God to live for us. That's at the heart of our sin. So what's God's answer to that? How does God choose to deal with us as sinners? He chooses to reverse his place with ours. In order to forgive us of our sin, God switches place with us. Let me read you this quote by John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. You see, when our sin was to put ourselves on his throne where only God belonged, God forgave us by placing himself on the cross where only we belong. And so at the heart of this gospel is this great reversal where God takes the death that we deserve so we can receive the life that he earned. This is unbelievable. I mean, I had the benefit of sitting with this text all week to really think about it, but I want to invite you to wrap your mind around it. Your sin was to try to take place with God. And what was his response? He took your place instead. Now, imagine that one day a, a very good friend of yours gets a phone call. They're, they're notified by the police that they've been the victim of identity theft. So they found out that a thief was trying to steal all of your friends' uh, money that they had hacked into their bank account, was ciphering money from their savings into theirs, and simultaneously was, was transferring all of their debt, all of their loan, uh, under your friend's name, under your friend's social security number. What is the appropriate response? What does justice look like? It looks like pressing charges. It looks like making sure that person goes to jail so they never harm another person. But imagine you gave that advice to your friend. You call them the next day and you say, what did you do? And they said, well, I thought of a greater, a greater idea. And you said, well, what's a greater idea? And they said, well, what I decided to do was uh, not only did I forgive the thief, but I actually, I thought, I thought it would be good for me to wire all my money into their bank account. 
And you're they, they, what? That's crazy. And they said, well, you know, and, and then I thought, you know, I, I, I could probably pay back their loans and their debt too. And so I put my name, my social security number to what they owed. What kind words would you have for your friend? You're out of your mind. You're a fool, fool of a took. What are you doing? In fact, if you were a good friend, you wouldn't let them do that. And yet, this is exactly what God did for us. When we try to take his throne and we steal his crown, he not only forgives us through the death of his son, but he promises us an inheritance. And when we try to steal his crown, what does it say for us in Scripture? 1 Corinthians 9. That he offers us a crown. Why would he do that? It just doesn't make sense. But this is how much he loves us. This is his kind and gracious heart that flows out of him towards sinners. This is why the gospel is so incredible. It's the Christian good news. God switches places with us. And that becomes the basis, that becomes the center of all of our remembering, all of our celebrating. We talked last week when Dr. Bill Smith was here about what is the message of Christ, the word of Christ, the good news that's supposed to dwell in us. It's what God has done for us through Jesus in taking our place and giving us the reward of his obedience. This must be the center. Why do we gather? Why do we meet? Fellowship is great. Eating together is really great. (laughs) Singing songs is good. But at the core of it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by which we remember and we celebrate in his goodness. So that's the very first thing. Well, the second thing is this. We learn that in remembering and celebrating the gospel, it must become a priority in our lives. A priority. Look with me at verse 26. It says, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. And then you look at the end of verse 28. It says, These days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Do you hear the sense of priority and centrality that Purim is to have in the lives of God's people? Firmly obligated into your life. Without fail, make sure to keep it. Let it never fall into disuse. Never cease to remember it. Wow, what a priority given. Now think about this then. If this holiday, this feast by which the people were spared from a physical endangerment leads to this kind of priority, how much more so does the gospel of Jesus Christ lead us to making sure remembering and celebrating who Jesus is becomes a priority in our lives? The question really becomes then, do you guard and do you protect these times so that you observe them without fail? Do we obligate ourselves? Do we make the space and time to adequately remember and celebrate what God has done? 
You know, we are a people who we remember and we celebrate. It's just what we do. You know, Hallmark has capitalized on this. Hallmark cards, right? They're cards for every kind of occasion. We remember, we celebrate everything. Birthdays, anniversaries, uh, sports championships, military victories, historical events. We remember and celebrate so many things. You know, it's July. It's been five months since the Eagles won the Super Bowl, and I still hear people talking about it. They say, I still can't believe we won. It still feels so surreal. It's still such an amazing feeling. People wearing hats, T-shirts, champions. You know, just like last month in Philly, they blocked off a whole block and they re-showed the game. I've heard people who've said, oh, I've watched the game twice or three times since. What are they doing? They're remembering and they're celebrating. Every time you take out your phone and you click on your old pictures and you go through and you look at the past things you've taken pictures of, what are you doing? You're remembering and you're celebrating. Every time that you frame a certificate or you display a trophy or you put up a plaque in your house, what are you doing? You're remembering and celebrating. And all those things are good. They're all important. The real question is, are you remembering and celebrating the most important things first? And as I've thought about that, what are those areas of remembrance and celebration that we must protect, that we must guard, that must be a priority? I wanted to talk about three. Now, there are more than three, but I want to talk about three. The first is the priority of personal worship. How are you personally remembering and celebrating the gospel each and every day? How are you making this a priority in your life? Because here's the thing. If I sit down and I ask you this question, I already know how it would go. Life is busy. Okay. It'll always be busy. Therefore, busyness is never an excuse to neglect personal worship. That's why we're calling it a priority, not a convenience. This is not the convenience of personal worship. This is the priority of it. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you had to turn down something or reschedule something because it, inter, uh, it, it conflicted or it interfered with your personal worship time? When was the last time you ever said, oh, I can't do that or let's reschedule? And the person's like, oh, why? Do you have something? And you say, oh, I have to do my personal worship. May it be as so bold to say, maybe that's never been the case. And the reason is simple. Because we have never prioritized personal worship to that level. And therefore, we've always been too busy to do devotions, but we've never been too busy because we're doing devotions. Now, let me tell you something. I have never been too busy to brush my teeth. I've been late to meetings. I've been late to appointments because I've woken up late. I snoozed a little too much. But I know I need to brush my teeth before I leave the house, so I risk being late. Why? Because I made this a priority. I can't get throughout the day without brushing my teeth. Now, I used a very important word here. I said, I made this a priority. Not, I make this a priority. Do you know why? I don't have to make it a priority to brush my teeth every day because I've been prioritizing it for years. Now I don't need to make it a priority. It just is a priority in my life. It's just a part of my life. You will never hear me say, except maybe on the mission field, uh, you'll never hear me say, I'm too busy to brush my teeth. 
In the same way, when you prioritize personal worship and commitment to remembering and celebrating the gospel every single day, it becomes a part of your daily life. It's just a part of what it means to live. It's like brushing your teeth. And it becomes a priority. And you stop using the excuse, I'm too busy to do it. You know why? Because now personal worship is the thing you're too busy doing. Hey, can we go here? No, I'm, I'm too busy. Oh, with what? With doing my devotion. Now, there's no magic formula to this. A famed pastor was once asked by a seminary. He went to the seminary. He gave a talk. He was talking about how every morning his whole life he did devotions. He read the word and he prayed. And the seminarian came up to him and said, Sir, you know, pastor, how do you manage to do that? Is it, is it by some divine spiritual strength? The pastor looked at him and said, No, young man. I get up in the morning. That's the simple solution. You get up and you do it. You prioritize personal worship so that every day you remember and you celebrate the goodness of God and what he's done for you in Jesus. That's the first priority. The second sphere of that is the priority of family worship. Now, I need, I need a little extra boldness to talk about this one. As a family, are you remembering and celebrating together? Fathers and mothers, are you discipling your kids and teaching them that remembrance and celebration are not limited to Sunday services, but they have a place in your life and in your home Monday to Saturday? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Many of us have never had this modeled to us. We didn't have parents who led us through family worship. And that's a great shame, but it's not an excuse. Because there are many things that you didn't have provided for you that you work so hard now to provide for your kids. I mean, if you're growing up, had a parent who would take you to sports practice, pick you up after theater class, take you to swimming lessons. And you work so hard to provide those things for your kids, and yet modeling worship, you do not have that, but why is that so easily thrown out the door? And I want to encourage and challenge those who aren't yet parents to consider this as well, because if one day, by God's grace, you become a father and a mother, how will you make your home a place of remembering and celebrating God in his gospel? It's never too late to start this. It's never too late, and by that I mean two things. One, it's never too late to start this even if your kids are older. But my kid's 16, but my kid's 17. You're still their parent. They have a driver's license. Take it away. <laughs> you are a steward, and your child is a gift of God that God has given to you to raise and teach about how to live in remembrance and celebration. Oh, it's too late. Your child is never too old. Second, it's never too late to start this, even if you think you're too old as a parent. Or so much time has passed, how can I start doing it now? Well, one... Forgive me, but get over yourself because you're not the perfect parent. Only God is. It's okay for you to try something new as a parent and for your kid to see, oh, mommy and daddy didn't know that. It's good to see, it's good for a child to see their parent trying to obey God. And yeah, sure, you may be 50 and your kid 15 and you're going, man, this is a little embarrassing that I never did this before. Hey, it's okay. 
And the scriptures only care about whether you are making this a priority. Not how you're doing it. Whether you want to spend 10 minutes or one hour, I'd recommend more closer to 10 minutes, but one hour is fine. Whether you want to open up a hymn book and, and sing just a cappella, or if you want to turn on a, a Christian recording and, and sing along to it. Whether you want to do it at breakfast, whether you want to do it at dinner. The when, where, and how is not important. The that you're doing it is important. Prioritize family worship to remember and celebrate God's gospel. Third is the priority of Sunday worship. Are you prioritizing Sunday worship? Now I'm preaching to the choir because all of you are here, which means in some sense you did prioritize it, but I'm not saying that prioritizing it looks like showing up for the two hours at church. That's not it. Let me illustrate this with the story. You know, when I was younger uh, and I played violin in the school orchestra, uh, my teachers were so discouraged by me. Um, because while everybody else was getting better and better and learning their parts, you know, at first, if your kids are taking lessons, it's just screeching, screech, screech, screech. But then over time, that screech, screech, screech becomes hot cross buns, <laughs> and it slowly becomes music. And whereas everyone was getting better and better, I was just getting worse and worse. And I would stand in the back. I was third violin. I didn't know there was such a thing. That means I stood behind everyone else, and I airboat. And if I didn't, I played, I would just make it worse. And the reason I wasn't getting better better was simple. Rather than practicing like I should have after school, I was more interested in riding my bike around the neighborhood. Now, if at any moment someone said, you're not prioritizing the violin, I could easily defend myself. How dare you say that? <laughs> I always go to orchestra class. I always attend the concerts. I always wore the black pants and white shirt like they told me to. I never missed a day. And yeah, sure, I showed up and I did all of that, but without preparation, was the violin really my priority? Without preparing, how can you truly claim something is your priority? You see, the evidence of are you prioritizing Sunday worship is not are you showing up to Sunday worship. The evidence of are you prioritizing Sunday worship is are you preparing for the Lord's Day? Are you getting ample rest the night before? Are you reading over the sermon passage before? Are you, are you praying for a worshipful heart? And that's not only the things before. How are you guarding and prioritizing your time spent with God's people after the service? Because it's not just what you do before, it's what you do after. Are you scheduling things right after service so that you have to leave right after and forsake fellowship with others? Are you, do you have something scheduled so you're constantly checking your phone or your watch because you're distracted and ready to storm out of here as soon as the benediction and dismissal comes? You see, prioritizing Sunday worship doesn't just mean showing up for two hours every single week. Prioritizing Sunday worship means that you are preparing and guarding the time both before and after the service so that you adequately have the time and the space to remember and celebrate who God is and what he has done for you in Jesus. As the Jews prioritize Purim in their lives, we as believers should prioritize our own times of celebration and remembrance in our personal worship, in our family worship, and in Sunday worship. Now, third and last, 
Remembrance and celebration should be taught to the generations, taught to the next generation. Look with me at verse 27. Again, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days. And then again at the end of verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation in every clan, province, and city. Now I want us to pay attention to the emphasis given to make sure that the covenant community teaches the next generation to keep Purim. The covenant community is instructed, burdened with the task to make sure the next generation remembers and celebrates. Now, as I've already said, I want to affirm, parents are their children's primary disciples. There are no substitutes. Sunday school teachers aren't, youth directors aren't, pastors aren't, elders aren't. Parents are. However, as a covenant community, as a family of God, every older believer shares the burden to teach the younger generation, to teach the generation after them. So first let me address parents again. You have this burden as your children are the next generation. You have the closest link to the next generation because you see them seven days a week, or at least you should see them seven days a week. So what are you telling them is most important to remember? What are you training them is uh, most important to celebrate? What are you teaching them is of ultimate importance in life? But more than, more than the teaching, that's very important, but as is often said, things are more caught than they are taught. So what are you modeling to the next generation? What are you demonstrating and passing on to them? So fathers, are your children learning that dad is most happy when he's worshiping God? Or when he's watching sports or fishing or left alone in the tool shed? I'm sorry, I think I singled one person out when I said fishing. <laughs> Did not mean that. And mothers, you know, are, you, are, you, are your children learning that mom is most at peace when she is reading and listening to God's word? Or are you teaching them that mom is most at peace when she's sitting down with a good book or searching the web or chatting with friends? What are you modeling? And let me address the whole family of God. You and I, because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, do you know that you are instructing the next generation about how to remember and celebrate the gospel through your, one, attitude toward worship, two, your approach to worship, three, your actions during worship, and four, your affections displayed in worship. Do you know that by how you show up, your attitude, approach, your actions, and your affections in worship is teaching the next generation. There is a lesson being passed on to those looking up to you in how you arrive, in how you prepare, in how you leave. There's a lesson being passed on when those looking up to you see you when you, when you arrive, whether or not you prepare, when you leave. For all of us in the church, what we do is instructional and formative to the next generation, whether or not you want to assume responsibility. So the natural one, yes, parents to their children. That's understood. And when I say teaching the next generation, I think everyone thinks, well, older people, they're younger people. Well, what does that mean? Elementary school students, 
you are teaching and instructing the toddlers. Stepping Stones is teaching pebbles. And youth group students, you are instructing elementary school students. The Stepping Stones kids, college students, you are modeling something to the youth group. Young adults, you are teaching the college students, and so on and so forth. It's not just old and young, but it's every generation modeling. And across the generations, the church is teaching and learning. We're always teaching, we're always learning how to remember and celebrate God from what we see around us. Verse 28 says that the Jews did not want Purim to seize among their descendants. How can we ensure that remembrance and celebration does not cease in the next generation here at Cornerstone? And it's when we must be careful not to teach religious tradition, which leads to ritualism and routine, and ends up as dead faith. Why are we going to church? Because I said so. Why can't I wear a t-shirt? Because God hates (laughs) t-shirts. Why can't I wear my hat? Because God gave you a nice head of hair that he wants you to show. It's so tempting to teach in just the simple kind of, this is what we do. This is the tradition. Rather, we must be careful to teach gospel promise. Gospel promise. What Jesus has done for us in saving us from our sins, which will lead to remembrance and celebration and will result in a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now let me close, because at the end of this story, in chapter 10, verse 1, when it seems like the Jews are victorious, we're reminded, very soberingly, we're reminded that King Ahasuerus still sits on the throne. This unqualified, unrighteous king still rules and reigns over the lands. But despite that, the Jews still remember and celebrate. But for us today, things are different. Because right now, King Jesus sits on the throne and he rules and reigns over the universe. And his hand may be invisible and his sovereignty may be silent and his providence may be hidden, but he is working out the salvation of his people and preserving each one of us until the end. And because this is true, how richer and fuller our reason our motivation to remember and celebrate the God of our salvation. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for the book of Esther and we're thankful for all of its themes and all of its admonishment, all that we are instructed by from it. And today as we have focused on remembrance and celebration, God, we pray that from our individual lives to the lives of our family to the lives of this church, that at the heart of all we remember, at the heart of all we celebrate, is how good you have been to us. How you took our place when we tried to take yours. And you took our death and we receive your life. And God, I pray that as a church, we would begin Now, to take that seriously, to pass on this gospel through our actions, through our attitude, through our approach, 
that we would teach the next generation how to remember and who to celebrate. God, do this work in our church by your spirit, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, if you look at our core values, uh, Global Missions is listed fifth, but that's not because we consider it last. We consider it actually the culmination of uh, being gospel-centered. That it, If you're properly gospel-centered, it will result in mission. And so we're so thankful to hear that. Um, I know we are, we're way past uh, this, the time, and uh, thank you guys for uh, sticking around. Um, but before we get to the benediction, could we uh, just spend some time praying um, for... Uh, the work that God is doing in Germany, particularly with the refugees there. And also praying, it breaks my heart to hear the situation at the church, uh, Wilhelmsburg? Yeah, church and the pastor being burnt out. So uh, let's just pray for that church and the ministry God is doing there. And then we'll close uh, with the benediction and dismissal. So would you join me in prayer? Father, you are indeed the Lord of the harvest. And so we thank you that you have drawn and are drawing men and women to yourself all around the world. And Father, it's amazing to think that the gospel, uh, which came out of the Middle East, uh, has gone around the world and is now reaching uh, people from there again uh, who are now uh, all over the world, uh, Father, because of uh, wars and strife and division and Father, it can be a helpless and hopeless situation, but we remember um, who you are, your sovereign power, your divine providence, your wonderful plan. And we trust, Lord, that you will continue to spread your gospel through your people and your church, people like Missionary Oksun, Lord, and that you, you will use her and her team uh, in Hamburg to continue to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. And we pray for her church that you would send to them a pastor, uh, Lord, uh, not one to lead, but one to serve and one to um, continue to encourage God. So we thank you for the encouragement we received. We pray your continual blessing, Lord, upon the work um, of the immigrants and the refugees in Hamburg that you would draw many men and women to yourself and that you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Friends, would you all arise as we receive the benediction? Receive God's blessing. Now may the grace, the oh-so-abundant grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the overflowing love of God the Father the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Here to this missile from Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Go in peace, friends. <laughs>